This year marks 80 years since Japanese, German, and Italian Americans were incarcerated in camps during World War II. But the stories of these Americans who were locked away, often for years, still aren't well known, even to their own families. It wasn't until I was just looking at records and looking at the census and trying to find when my grandparents came to the United States, like trying to find where was my grandmother born, like all these puzzle pieces that I eventually found my great-great-grandmother, who's actually my middle namesake, in the camp records. And scholarship on incarceration camps also lags behind. Uh, when I went off to college, I looked for books about German-American terms, but there just there weren't any. So it, it really had this sort of personal aspect to it. You know, why did this happen? From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, Legacies of World War II. In recent years, the incarceration of Japanese Americans during the war has gotten more attention, but most of it focuses on the West Coast, California in particular. Emma Ito is the Director of Education here at Virginia Humanities, and for years she has studied the racism and incarceration that Japanese Americans faced during World War II on the East Coast. Emma, most of us are familiar with what we call Japanese internment camps during World War II, but you don't call it internment. You call it incarceration. Why? I think that because internment is a word describing something that was kind of legally permissible but morally questionable, and we know now after these people were incarcerated, right, they were surrounded by barbed wire, they were surrounded by guards with guns, uh, that it really was incarceration. And so I, I really encourage folks to use that terminology as we kind of explore this a little bit more. You recently learned your own family was incarcerated during World War II. How did you find that out? And tell me something about your family. Sure. Yes. I feel like in some ways, finding out that story in my family history came to me when it needed to. So I've been studying Japanese American history for a long time now in grad school and a little bit in undergrad. And as I went through my grad school career, I really wanted to know more about what was it like for people like me? What was it like for Japanese Americans, for Asian Americans in Virginia during Jim Crow, during segregation, during World War II? And so I was exploring that. I did my uh, master's thesis on that. I've done many talks now on this history. And it actually wasn't until last year that I found out that my great-great-grandmother was incarcerated. How could you not know? I know. <laughs> it was... It was really, really powerful. And I so much of that has to do with, and I hear this from other families too, is the shame of being incarcerated and this history that people don't talk about and families don't talk about it. Um, one of the first Japanese words that I learned was actually gaman, which means to persevere. So like that was a word that was often used and in reference to the camps because you just persevere. You don't talk about it and you just move on from it. And so I didn't know that my great-great-grandmother, who's actually my middle namesake, her name was Tama, um, was in the camps, and my dad didn't know. How old was she? She was a middle-aged woman, so she actually came to United States in 1907, which is kind of wild. Uh, she probably came during this time of the gentleman agreements, which is kind of a series of notes that the United States had with Japan. Um, but essentially she came in— Wait, what do you mean by a series of notes? <laughs> so it was like it was a, a series of diplomatic notes uh, that basically said that it was trying to kind of limit Japanese immigration to the United States, um, but it ended up having a lot of women and children coming. And so they could women and children could only come if they were married or related to a man that was already here. And so there were a lot of paper brides and people who got married that weren't never met each other, right, to bring them over to the United States. Fascinating. So do you think she was a so-called mail-order bride but from abroad? You know, I'm not sure. Her story is really interesting, and I'm still trying to find all these things because my grandparents never talked about it. You know, I I never got to meet my great-great-grandmother, but uh, I know that my my dad did, and, like, he grew up with her in California, and we didn't know any of this. He didn't know any of this. And so when I finally started looking at these records, because the story that I was told was that my great-grandmother and my grandmother were Kibe. 
So what that means is that it's someone who was born in the United States, but then went to Japan and studied and lived most of their life in Japan and then came back here. So that was, I was always under the impression that my family was just Kibe, and then we had nothing to do with incarceration um, because th they weren't here. And so uh, it wasn't until I was just looking at records and looking at the census and trying to find, like, when my grandparents came to the United States, like, trying to find, like, where where was my grandmother born? Like, all these all these puzzle pieces that I eventually found Tama in, in the camp records um, in, in Utah and in these records of she was sent to Tana Florin um, Assembly Racetrack, where she was essentially put in these horse stalls, like right after Pearl Harbor. And so there were all these Japanese Americans and Japanese immigrants that were just in these horse stalls, like where, where horses were kept. It was like smelly racetracks and uh, then sent to the camps. She was sent to Topaz in Utah. So this is all still like very new. And like, I think like my dad and I are trying to fully understand like what that really means. And why wasn't this ever talked about, you know? Like, he did spend time with Tama as a child. And, you know, I guess <laughs> why would an, someone tell their, like, a child that this happened to them? So I think that was, like, it's been really interesting. So when you started on this journey of understanding the history of incarceration of Japanese Americans, not only your great-grandmother's experience, but also others, you realized Japanese Americans were also incarcerated on the East Coast. It wasn't just the West Coast, although most of it was there. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's the story I always learned, right? Like, that's the history we all always learn is that this was just a West Coast phenomenon. And the more that I, I questioned more deeply of like, but there, there must have been people here, right? There must have been one or two or three or four people that might have been living here. And, and I really wanted to understand like what it would have been like for them. Were they taken to camps? And what's really interesting in Virginia is that there were. There were certainly, there was a small community of Japanese American men in particular in Norfolk um, that were taken to the camps. And then there were also these cases of like, I always think of this woman, her name was Alma Tata, who was half Japanese. Her mother was white and her father, Arthur, was Japanese. And there's this article that says, like, her father was taken um, to jail right after Pearl Harbor, and she hired an attorney to try and get him out, which is so interesting to me because, like, already that says to me, someone who's half Japanese here in Virginia wasn't picked up to put in the camps. Whereas in California... At one point, it was like if you had one sixteenth Japanese blood, you were taken to the camps. So it's like a very strange, like different experience over here, at least for her case, where it seems like not everyone was taken and it was more men. But there were certainly people here both before incarceration and, and during. You put together a slideshow with pictures and history and newspaper articles about Japanese-American incarceration during World War II. This piece from a newspaper that you included about a Norfolk man really touched me. It says, on Monday, December 8th, 1941, immediately after Pearl Harbor, the Virginian pilot reported that 14 Japanese residents of Norfolk were taken into custody. One was a cafe owner who had lived in Norfolk for 12 years. So the day after, you're rounded up. I mean, the stunning reprisal and hauled away your life completely disrupted no income source, no nothing. Yeah, and that story in particular, I really encourage folks to to look up Regina Boone and her NHK documentary. And she tells her own story of, of finding her Japanese grandfather, who was one of the men in Norfolk taken. Um, and I, I really highly recommend folks to watch it because it's just so moving and so powerful. And particularly with her family and her Japanese grandfather, um, they were in the black community in Norfolk. And so Regina's father actually started um, a black-owned, black-run newspaper here in Richmond called the Richmond Free Press. So it, her story, I really, I, I can't do it justice. It's not my story to tell, but please, please look at that documentary. You also point out the Japanese diplomats from D.C. were rounded up and taken to a more upscale detention at the famous Homestead Resort in part of Virginia. 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, that's definitely something I think that gets left out of the narrative a lot. And and again, like I want to emphasize too, like people tend to think of Virginia as being this place that Asian and Asian Americans are are new to the state. And there's certainly large groups of folks and people that are new to the state, but there's also this long history here, right? Like there are Asian immigrants here, at least in, in records, as early as 1860. Um, so I like the homestead example because I think people think of that as this luxury resort, if you know of it. If you don't, it's this hot springs, very fancy resort that was around. Um, And what's interesting about homestead is that there were lots of Japanese diplomats and diplomats that were there prior to incarceration. Um, There with their families, their children were playing in the the springs in the water with other children. Um, And then you you go over past World War II and that's the same place that they would visit. Are They're now surrounded by guards. Um, and specifically with Homestead, they were not there very long, but specifically for Homestead, uh, they basically said the FBI had to um, fingerprint and ID folks coming in and you had to have very specific like IDs to come in. And, you know, it it was guarded by people with guns. Life magazine, you said, did a four-page spread on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and honestly, too, like I, I read a lot of newspaper articles that were really, really racist towards these folks. And so they weren't there that long, but it was still incarceration. You also include a 1920s article by a scholar named John Taranian about whiteness And he says the Japanese Americans aren't considered white and that whiteness was something that was believed had to be demonstrated through actions. Exactly. What does that mean? That's an excellent article that he talks about performance and whiteness as performance. And I think that really slides in with this like assimilation with model minority and this idea that okay, maybe these Asian immigrants were more accepted if they were Christian or if they spoke English well, if they weren't maybe were or weren't marrying white women, Um, which in some places, like here in Virginia, it wasn't legal for Asian immigrants to marry white women. And we see that even with this court case later called 9 v. 9 in Virginia, which was 11 years before Loving versus Virginia. That very, it was a very complicated court case, but basically uh, argued that an Asian, he was a Chinese American man, couldn't be married to a white woman. Ultimately, why do you think it's important to tell these stories, not just of the Japanese-American incarceration in the West, but also about the Japanese incarceration in the South and the East? Yeah. And I I will mention here, too, I think that a lot of people, if they know about Japanese-American incarceration, I think that they think that it was just the West Coast, just like me. I didn't know. I mean, how would I have known that? I never I learned know. it. Yeah. Um, and and it's more than that, right? Like the other stories we don't tell is like there were Japanese Canadians and Japanese Peruvians that were sent to the camps here in the United States. Um, and, you know, when reparations finally did happen, those folks did not get reparations. Uh, so it's, it's such a like complicated story that has so many reaches everywhere. Did the Virginians incarcerated get reparations? You know, I still don't know the answer to that. That's a really good question. And and honestly, that that also goes to what we were talking about earlier with people not talking about this. I was always told, I also had a great uncle not blood related in the camps. And I was always told the story that he didn't take reparations. He wouldn't take it. He was too angry and it, enough money would never would never fix this. But then I hear stories, too, that, like, yes, it goes back to the shame piece. They really didn't want to talk about this. And that that kind of brings us back to, like, why is this important? We're starting to see a more resurgence of understanding, like, this story needs to be told. And there's so many pieces that reverberate now. I think about reparations and how Japanese Americans were the only people in the United States that have received reparations like this. Like, what kind of conversations can we have about reparations in slavery? I think about how a lot of these camps, just like everything else in the United States, was on stolen land, stolen indigenous land, Um, especially like we're talking about camps in like Wyoming and Utah. And so what kind of conversations can we have there? So I think there's just so many, so many important pieces to be talking about. And and I'm not even mentioning like incarceration itself, right? As we talk about children and and refugees in barbed wire camps, um, as we talk about ICE, 
So there's just so many important lessons and and questions to be pulled out of this. And I, I just think it's it's really important. And it's it's for me personally, especially someone in education, like I needed to see my own history. And I didn't see this history reflected. I didn't learn much about the camps as as a high school student, um, period. And I definitely didn't learn about Asian Americans in the South. You know, we were here. We were, and like I am, like I'm a Southern Asian American. I can pull out my accent sometimes depending on where I am. Um, But it's just such a strange thing for people to understand sometimes. Emma Ito, thank you for sharing your insights on this on With Good Reason. Thank you so much. (laughs) Emma Ito is the Director of Education here at Virginia Humanities. Japanese Americans weren't the only immigrants persecuted during World War II. Many German and Italian immigrants were also sent to incarceration camps and others were repatriated. John Schmitz is a history professor at Northern Virginia Community College and author of Enemies Among Us, The Relocation, Internment, and Repatriation of German, Italian, and Japanese Americans during the Second World War. John, your own family, including your dad, was interned during World War II. What did you learn about his experience and the family's experiences? Yes, as a child, I learned that my father was interned, as was the rest of my family, my grandparents, his parents, uh, he had a, a brother, two sisters, um, and one of his sisters was actually born in the camp. Um, when I went off to college at UNC Chapel Hill, I looked for books about German-American terms, but there just there weren't any. So it, it really had this sort of personal aspect to it. You know, why did this happen? Um, I couldn't really see my grandma or my grandfather as much of a threat. And I remember my grandmother as a very cheerful person. But my grandfather, he always seemed kind of sad, and I was curious to know why. And I think internment had a, a pretty substantial impact on my grandfather as a person, and I think even my father. Tell me a little bit about your grandfather and grandmother, and when and why they first came from Germany to America. Yeah, so like so many others, they came searching or trying to earn a better living, start in a new place. So they came over in the mid to late 1920s. But they just never naturalized. So they had been in country, say, about 13 years, maybe 14, when the United States entered World War II. You may have gone through life, never have even jaywalked or had a, you know, an overdue library book or anything, right? No criminal activity, nothing, squeaky clean. And if the United States were to go to war against the country of which you were, you know, a, a resident, uh, you became, by definition, an enemy alien because the United States was at war with your country of origin. So by definition, my grandparents were now enemy aliens and subject, therefore, to apprehension, detention, and even expulsion. You write that your grandfather was a waiter at the time. Your grandmother was a housewife, a mom. What did they tell you, or what did your grandfather tell you when he first realized he was going to be incarcerated, in effect? Yeah, so the FBI um, agents came to his door and said that they wanted to speak to him. People were very fearful. So I think, especially at that time, if you spoke German, if you didn't quite seem, quote-unquote, American, you might be suspect. So people often reported on their neighbors. And prior to that, all aliens had to register uh, with the FBI, um, usually at, at post offices, and several million did so. And then you would be taken in for questioning, right? The FBI would try to determine your potential, what was called dangerousness. So at one point, he was asked, um, you know, about his loyalty and then asked, you know, would you go fight in Germany against Germans? And probably the, you know, not such a good answer would be to tell them to take a hike, which I think is what my grandfather (laughs) told them to do in in, in polite words. You know, he would go, (laughs) he said he'd he'd have no problems fighting the Japanese, but there's no way he would go to Germany and potentially fight against, you know, his cousins, distant relatives, friends, whatever. Like, he just wouldn't do that. So Mm. that was often enough. And they were not permitted legal counsel. They weren't allowed to defend themselves, like, through neighbors and friends. They were largely considered kangaroo courts, like, even at the time. So he is then, or they are then sent to Ellis Island initially. So Ellis Island, actually, during the war becomes, 
an internment center. So from there, they were sent to Crystal City, Texas. So they had to give up all their belongings. Uh, I think friends kept some of their stuff, but they pretty much lost everything, right? They They lose their jobs, they lose their property. And then they spent the next three years from the summer of 1943 to the summer of 1946 in Crystal City, Texas. You know, you write that it wasn't so bad for your dad. He was only seven years old when he was first there. And he had nice things to do that were typical for a child, but that your grandfather, who was 35 at the time, was embittered by it. Yeah, Sarah, that's right. I mean, as a a child, you don't really notice the barbed wire. You don't really pay attention to those sorts of things. What you pay attention to are, you know, is is the swimming pool. (laughs) You go to school. You know, they played in these orchards. um, But where what's often called the barbed wire disease really impacted people, I'd say mid to upper teens into adulthood, where you've understood pretty fully um, what was happening to you, right? That, you know, you had no idea how long you were going to be um, incarcerated or interned. Um, And the FBI warned you, they warned uh, folks when they were finally allowed to leave that you better keep quiet about your experience because, as they put it, the FBI and authorities, they can make life difficult for you. And you would also know, typically, a question would be if you're looking for employment, right, after internment, uh, a reasonable question would be, well, what did you do during the war, right? (laughs) Did you, were you in the military? Did you work in a defense plant? Um, Those sorts of things. So life was going to be tough anyway for former attorneys, right? You're going to have to essentially start over. You're going to have to rebuild. You're going to have to find a new place to live. Um, All those kinds of things, essentially start life over. But I think it really hit my grandfather especially hard because he felt betrayed. Um, uh, I think he loved Germany um, and he loved the United States. And to him, you know, this was, it it just was a, a real personal hurt. Most of us, when we think about people being interned in the war, think of the Japanese and that hideous experience that so many were subjected to. But you're writing that it was not only the Japanese, but also Germans and Italians, mostly one or another? Uh, No. So there were two really related but distinct processes. So they are very much related. So one was relocation. And there were over 120,000 Uh, I think exactly 120,313 Japanese, pretty accurate figure, right, who were relocated, almost all of them from the West Coast. So General DeWitt was in charge of the West Coast. uh, General Hugh Drum was in charge of the East Coast. And the primary enemy along the West Coast was considered the Japanese. You know, after Pearl Harbor, there was great fear of, most people thought not if, but when the Japanese would strike. And this great fear at the time, I and mean, we know in retrospect, of course, the Japanese never did or would invade the West Coast, but it was not known at the time, or maybe there'd be another attack. So many thought they needed to prioritize. So the idea was, let's deal with the primary threat first, Japanese-Americans, and then go after the Germans, and then maybe the Italians. So you have this mass evacuation of what is a large number, but the Japanese were a very small minority in terms of percentage of population like in California and along the West Coast, like just 1% or so. Whereas on the Hawaiian Islands, they were nearly 40%. So you, you can't lock up, you can't move 30 or 40 or 50% of your population. You just cannot do it. And so those that same logic in numbers applied to Germans and Italians. So some of those who wanted to remove them in huge numbers, uh, like DeWitt wanted to do the exact same thing, Um, once War Department, State Department personnel started doing the math, they told FDR, if you want to win the war, you cannot relocate German Italians en masse because you're talking about four, five, six, seven, eight million people. FDR's wife, Eleanor, felt very differently from him about the perceived threat from Japanese Americans. She thought that it was mostly hogwash. She did. Um, Unfortunately, (laughs) the men around FDR (laughs) disagreed. And it really is unfortunate. I think Eleanor and so many others had it spot on. And the other thing I think that shielded Germans and Italians, of course, from mass relocation, like the Japanese, in addition to their numbers, in addition to the economics, was the great number of refugees, uh, those who had fled Nazi Germany. Right and, and persecution there, from Thomas Mann to Albert Einstein to so many others who said, look, so many of these Germans, many of them are Jews. They are not only not a threat, 
they are allies. And we actually felt that we could tell, quote unquote, the good from the bad German versus we felt we could not discern or tell a good from bad Japanese and just the, the stereotype and the racism that clearly was there. I mean, there's no question that there's this tremendous fear of Japanese Americans, especially Japanese American men. And Pearl Harbor, I think, really drove things too, right? This incredible sense of outrage and wanting revenge. So if there were roughly 120,000 Japanese Americans who were interned or relocated, how many German Americans and Italian Americans? So almost 11,000 Germans were interned, uh, roughly 3,300 Italians. What was it like to try to pick up the pieces and start over three or four years after internment for your family and the many others? It was really difficult, I think. Um, I think for, for Germans after the war, when it became known the full extent, or at least to a much greater extent, what happened within the Holocaust, right? That The genocide, six million plus Jews. So I think many Germans felt ashamed of being German, um, being associated with Germany. So I, I think many just kind of kept quiet. I think there was an embarrassment, uh, plus the stigma of having been interned, right? I think um, just the, right. the sense of, of shame and how do you explain that? And I still remember it, at first my, my dad having a little difficulty doing that. And then even me, I, I remember myself as a child um, feeling ashamed of that, actually. I, I remember in elementary school, junior high school, even in high school, this was sort of an embarrassing uh, part of our family history. And how do I, and then later on, I thought, I, I really want to investigate this. And, you know, why did this happen? And, you know, these were extraordinary times, but um, involved the, I think, use of uh, sort of like pawns, right? Or exchange bait that right. thousands of people just become swept up. And what can you really do about it? It's just ordinary people who have their lives impacted in extraordinary times. And I think today, you know, what uh, Russia is doing in, in Ukraine, right? How wars often just so adversely impact in, in very serious ways, the lives of thousands or even millions of just ordinary people. Well, John Schmitz, this is such important history. Thanks for talking with me. And thank you so much, Sarah. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. John Schmitz is a history professor at Northern Virginia Community College and the author of Enemies Among Us, The Relocation, Internment, and Repatriation of German, Italian, and Japanese Americans During the Second World War. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. When you think of archaeology, what comes to mind? Paper maps and pickaxes and dusty places? Richard Freund is an archaeologist and a professor at Christopher Newport University. He uses a very different kind of archaeology, precise instruments and advanced technology, to uncover stories of Jewish resistance during World War II. Richard, during one of your excavations of a Polish extermination camp, you and your team found hundreds of keys. Did you wonder at first, what, what are these keys? About a decade ago, we were working in Sobibor, an extermination camp on the eastern front of Poland. And it was not very well known because the Jews staged one of the most daring uprisings of the entire Holocaust. On October the 14th, 1943, they rebelled and they got out. Mm. When the Nazis discovered that the Jews had staged this uprising, they wanted to make sure that nobody heard about it. So they brought in heavy equipment, they covered the camp with dirt, they planted trees, and they made it into a park where 250,000 Jews had been murdered. So here we are, and we're trying to figure out where are the, the people buried? Where are the gas chambers? And as we started to use our ground-penetrating radar, electrical resistivity tomography, these are techniques that um, 
basically can map the subsurface without having to do any digging. And we came up with hundreds of small, tiny keys. And we're looking at these keys and we're trying to figure out what are these keys doing here in an extermination camp? And I went to a survivor who had been at the Sobibor camp. And she looked at me and she says, when we came in off of the trains, they told us to take all of our suitcases and leave them there. And we locked our suitcases, thinking we're going for showers. And we walked down this long Himmelfallstrasse. It's a place that was colloquially called the way to heaven, because we now understand what actually was happening. And as we got closer to the gas chambers and we could see that the, the cremation piles were in the back, we started to take our keys, which we kept with us, and we hid them. We didn't want to make it easy for the Nazis to take what was left of our lives. So, you know, when people tell me about artifacts, and I talk about artifacts in archaeology, what we really are trying to figure out are the people behind the artifacts. How did they stage that uprising? How did they stage that? You know, very, it's one of the most um, courageous acts that you can imagine. 200,000 Jews had already been killed. And in the last stages, in 1943, the Jews there realized that when they were finished bringing in the last Jews and killing them, all the people at that camp were going to be the last victims. So they launched two plans. One where they were trying to dig a tunnel. Tunnel didn't work out. And then the second thing they did was they put together a plan to have a mass uprising on one day when they knew that the commandant was not going to be in town. And they went through the front gate. The guards were so surprised because most of these guards, I'm talking about the Nazi collaborators, and I'm talking about the, uh, the Nazis themselves, had this view that the Jews were passive and that they would go to their death like sheep to the slaughter. And this was not the case. We have found that at hundreds of sites, Jews resisted. Jews found ways of resisting in different types of ways, spiritually, culturally, but also, in this case, an armed rebellion. And although only about 50 of the 600 prisoners who were on site that day got out. Their 50 testimonies tell a story about how people realized they had to do something. And they went out through the front gate. And I'll, I'll tell you that since I've now worked on the, uh, the Sobibor case for over, over a decade, it tells us a lot about the human spirit. And part of this is really to track the human spirit. It makes me think of people on the jet that went down on 9-11, right? Let's do something. Right. Well, in this case, you know, the, these people had already been in the camp, some of them for six months, and they realized what was happening. And, and you know, we've now worked at three extermination camps and about... Um, 57 other sites worldwide on different periods of time. And this type of technology is so important because what it does is it allows you to do work without destroying the evidence. A lot of people don't understand that archaeology is probably the most destructive science on earth. It's one of those few technologies where we can never do the experiment ever again. When you touch the, the ground and you bring things out of the ground, you're immediately changing it. It's also labor-intensive, very expensive. 
what we've developed is a way of tracking archaeological sites without having to destroy the evidence. And that's, that is a really a, a great benefit, first of all, because in the case of Holocaust archaeology, we do not want to victimize the victims a second time. But more importantly, the artifacts now, when we find them, we know what the context is because we consult with the testimonies and if there are survivors still around, we're able to do that. In a moment, tell me how you use the same technology in Lithuania, in the former Jewish city of Vilna. But tell me first about the importance of Vilna and what happened there to the people who'd been there for generations. Well, I have to give you a personal story because back in 2014, a very famous Israeli archaeologist came to me and said, you know, Richard, I've been watching the way you do this type of non-invasive archaeology. And I think, well, let's, let's do a project together. And he said, I'd like to see if the great synagogue of Vilna is still there. I said, John, the great synagogue of Vilna was destroyed during World War II. He says, maybe it wasn't. He looks at me and I look at him and I said, John, why are we doing this? I'm a Roman period. You're a Byzantine. What, what, are, we, what are we doing this for? says, Richard, my family came from Vilna. Your family came from Vilna. I think it's time to use our professional skills to uncover what happened in Vilna. And what is Vilna, and what was the great synagogue there? First of all, you have to understand that Vilna was the Jerusalem of the north. Napoleon called it that. The Jews called it that. It was one of the greatest Jewish cities in fact, at its, in the 1930s, all the way up into the 1930s, 40% of the population of Vilnius, which was a capital of Lithuania, was a place where Jews had gathered for 500 years. And it was a place of Jewish culture, not just Jewish religion. There were over 120 synagogues. And the great synagogue was a mass of two football field complex. So how did the great synagogue get destroyed? First of all, it was destroyed during World War II, uh, first by the Nazis. And then after the war, while there were still remains, the Soviets came and decided to build an elementary school uh, on top of the area where the great synagogue had been. Now, what's so interesting about it is the great synagogue had been built in the 18th and 19th century with new architects who decided they wanted to create the largest religious institution in Lithuania. But there was an ecclesiastical law that the Jews could not build a synagogue any higher than local church. So the Jews came up with a new secret. The secret was instead of building up, they built down. And when they built the great synagogue they built it two floors below the street level. So what that meant was when the Nazis destroyed the, the synagogue and when the Soviets came in and built an elementary school on top, they preserved for all time everything that was below. So we came in with our ground penetrating radar and electrical resistivity tomography and basically identified where there were artifacts. And after taking out 150 thousand artifacts. The government of mm. Lithuania decided to give this area back to the Jewish community. And it's going to be turned into a park. Why did the Nazis wipe it out? And why am I only just learning that this site was considered the first ground zero for the Holocaust? Right. So most people talk about the final solution. Final solution included these very sophisticated extermination camps that were decided on in 1942 in Berlin. But before there was an extermination camp, the Nazis had decided on a policy of the Holocaust by bullets. And basically what they did was they came into communities, they recruited local collaborators, 
and they would take people, opportune places, out of the way of the city where they would just murder them in pits. So we worked, for example, for two years on a project at Ponar. Ponar is a, a burial site outside of uh, Vilnius where 100,000 people were murdered. And how do we know about it? We know about it first because the Nazis wrote about it. Second, because we have photographs of it. But third, because the Jews at Ponar in the burial pits were brought in to cremate the remains of these 100,000 people that had been shot. And they realized in 1944 that they were going to be the last victims. So what did they do? Like the Jews at Sobibor, they decided on a radical, courageous act, and they dug a 100-foot-long tunnel, escape tunnel, that really is, is amazing. And when they got out, they gave their testimonies, and no one believed them. And, of course, how are you going to find evidence of this escape tunnel? Well, when we came in 2016, we used electrical resistivity tomography that looked through the, the earth, and we could actually see the tunnel that was still there. And what's, what's so important about these kinds of stories is what they tell us about how we have to honor the memory of these people is not just dig up their tunnel, but to actually map it and to make sure that it's part of the record of what happened there. And I'll tell you, you know, we, we identified the children and the grandchildren of these people who survived. And we went, we met with them. And there was a night where I sat there amongst these children and grandchildren who had listened to their parents and grandparents and probably never believed them. And it was a moment, and it's very rare, of closure where they felt like they understood something that they never would have been able to understand from, from their parents because it was, the evidence was not there. So part of this Part of the story about Holocaust archaeology is that you can never get rid of all the evidence. Unfortunately, we're, we're facing again genocides and genocides that have been done in places like Cambodia and places like Rwanda. Can the perpetrators think that they're ever going to get away with it? It is impossible to remove all of the evidence. Richard Freund, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you. Richard Freund is the Bertram and Gladys Aaron Professor of Jewish Studies at Christopher Newport University. There are some well-known violent plots by Germans who tried to overthrow the Nazi regime. Valkyrie, for example— but what about the quieter acts of resistance? Donald Sonnen is a professor at Virginia Military Institute. He studies some of the Germans who stood up against Hitler in offices, courtrooms, and journals. Don, how widespread was the resistance to Hitler within Germany during World War II? I'm afraid to tell you that it wasn't very widespread at all because of how tightly things were controlled. There's an excellent summation of the difficulties that the resistance members had in communicating with each other. One of my favorite sources for that is a man named Helmut James von Moltke, who was a leader in the resistance, who worked for actually the Nazi German government in military intelligence. He was looking for support from anywhere abroad, particularly from Britain, where he had many friends. A long letter he wrote in 1943 was concerned with all of the lacks, and one of the most important lacks is lack of communication. And he writes, can you imagine what it is like if you, A, cannot use the telephone, B, cannot use the post, C, 
cannot send a messenger because you probably have no one to send. And if you have, you cannot give him a written message as the police sometimes searches people in trains, trams, etc. for documents. Cannot even speak with those with whom you are completely d'accord because the secret police have methods of questioning where they first break the will but leave the intelligence awake, thereby inducing the victim to speak out all he knows. Therefore, you must limit information to those who absolutely need it. The resistance was not as widespread as we would have hoped for, but there were many resistors. Yes. How many were executed by the Germans? Well, the executions went into high gear after July 1944, which featured a very well-known assassination attempt. The Gestapo shifted into high gear and arrested many of the people who had opposed Hitler and found to be involved with this plot. A lot of them were fatalistic about it. They, they felt that they would eventually be caught no matter what. I, I quote Helmut James von Moltke a lot because of the letters he wrote to his wife. He said, they're going to catch us, and when they catch us, they're going to kill us. He did write letters to his wife, and she kept those in a very secret place. Tell me about yes. that. Uh, the Moltke estate was a working farm, and uh, Helmut was working in Berlin for the Abwehr, military intelligence. Most of their contact was through these letters. She kept them in beehives. <laughs> One of the things Moltke says in his uh, letters to Freya, his wife, he says, I've accomplished a great deal, but I have to stay invisible because... Nobody must know what I've done because, of course, they'll catch him. He had to argue with military people about international law and Geneva conventions and things like that. If he simply didn't implement an order, if he didn't implement uh, something he was told to do, he could save thousands of lives. Something he did repeatedly is when the uh, Wehrmacht, the German military, would move into occupied lands like Poland. Moltke would argue very strongly to put the Wehrmacht, the soldiers, in charge of the local people. Otherwise, it would be the SS. The SS simply murdered people. The, the reason I'm attracted to him, the reason I, I like talking about him so much, he fought these battles in boardrooms, in meeting rooms. He fought the bureaucracy. And in his free time, he allied with a group of people that became known as the Kreisau Circle. It was named by the Gestapo because they met three times at the uh, Moltke estate. They also met many times in Berlin. It was four parts, essentially. People who worked for the government, socialists and labor leaders, and then Protestant and Catholic clerics. They formulated... Uh, what they felt would be a proper way to forge ahead with a new government and a new constitution after the uh, Nazis, uh, as they predicted, would lose the war. What had he done that eventually got him executed? He was, he was called a defeatist. He planned for a Germany after Hitler. And this to Nazis was simply not tolerable. For instance, uh, Adam von Trott, another figure in the resistance, was sentenced for having taken part in the assassination plot. So that was uh, fairly clear. But for Moltke, it was, uh, you planned a constitution, you planned a new Germany without Nazis. Right. He was actually arrested in January of 1944. So that's six months before uh, Colonel Stauffenberg's uh, attempted assassination so Moltke simply wasn't there. He was arrested in uh, January of 44. They arrested somebody whom he had warned about being uh. arrested. And so the Nazis got both of them. Tell me about Adam von Trott, who you mentioned was yeah. his friend, co-conspirator, and who was also executed for resisting Hitler. Well, Adam von Trott was, again, a, a lawyer and became a Rhodes Scholar. And he went to uh, Britain in 1931 
so before Hitler came to power. And then in 1933, when... Uh, Hitler became chancellor and then started outlawing all politics except his own party. Taught, you know, was out of the country and they and his friends in England said, uh, well, you'd better stay here. Uh, you'd be safe here. And Taught says, no, I must go back because if, on, if all his enemies, all Hitler's enemies are abroad, he'll have free reign. One of my sources, and I can't remember the author's name, says... What we're studying when we study the resistance is a failure. It's moral courage that we're really studying and what makes people stand up to a dictator. I mean, if you know the penalty for what you're doing, but your moral compass directs you to, to do it anyway, I feel that's most honorable. And it's uh, something that should be studied and examined by everyone. Donald Sonnen, thank you so much for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Donald Sonnen is a professor of modern languages and cultures at Virginia Military Institute. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costo are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, Go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.